Industry Focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, November 13th, and we're talking about Airbnb. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Jason Hall. Jason, how you doing? Fantastic. This is going to be a fun one. It's it's funny, right? There's there's how many of your of your industry focused colleagues and you got into just almost. I mean, I think if if you guys were in the office, there actually might have been fisticuffs over this one. <laughs> you know, to let people in a little bit behind the scenes, yeah, there was there was some active slacks going back and forth about exactly where this one falls. Uh, you know, it's it's a tech company. They operate in the consumer goods space. I could see a lot of different claims being laid to this one. What I will say, Jason, is I know Emily Flippin was was pretty into covering this one. When the news hit, I happened to be in a position to talk about it. But I'll throw out there, she talked DoorDash, which I would argue could be a tech company. With me, with me, actually, yeah, yeah. So you're you're the neutral party here. Everyone else is trying to lay claim to things, and you're just like, if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it with you. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just soaking up all the goodness here, and it's it's so unfair. But I am, I am, I'm gonna roll with it. Yeah, you know, Jason, we do S one shows all the time, and I think they're fun in general because it's a first look at a business. We really get to dive into everything that they're disclosing. And that's fantastic. But it's particularly fun for a company that we know so well. And in my case, uh, I've used plenty. Um, So I think probably most of our audience is going to be familiar with Airbnb, but we should do a quick little rundown on who they are and what they do. For folks that are unfamiliar, it is an online vacation rental marketplace. And folks who have property can make it available for short-term rentals typically short-term and rental uh, nature, usually weekend trips or multi-week vacations. They can be used uh, for longer trips as well, though it's a little bit less common. And some quick history on the business. It was founded in 2008 by roommates and former classmates, Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia, maybe Jebbia. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, And it started out as airbedandbreakfast.com. It was their answer to the absurd accommodation shortage in San Francisco. Fun fact, Jason, if you go to airbedandbreakfast.com, it takes you to Airbnb. They still have that URL. Of course it does. It makes sense. Absolutely <laughs> makes sense. You know, and here's the funny thing about it, right? I think it's it's interesting, right? Because it was an airbed. They were literally renting out airbeds and their apartment for people that were coming for a conference. I think they rented airbeds to three or four different people in their little two-bedroom apartment um, in, in, the, in the Bay Area. And now what the business has become today is like the law of unintended consequences, right? This is not a business of people renting out airbeds in their living room and in their dining room. This is a completely different, a different business model. This reminds me a little bit of the necessity is the mother of invention quote, where you know this is a, perhaps a problem that is very unique to very specific markets uh, in San Francisco, obviously being one of them, where people are willing to accept very bare bones accommodations because uh, things are so expensive there. Uh, it's in so high demand. Um, <laughs> they have grown far beyond their origins here. But but I think that they tapped into something and then realized very quickly that there's probably a more refined version of this that scales really well. And as it turns out, is a pretty viable business. I am a customer. And I think the value prop here uh, is one that you recognize as well, Jason. Oh, no doubt about it. Um, I'm also a customer as a matter of fact, and you know, I, I, I'm married and we have a young child, and we almost exclusively use Airbnb for leisure travel. 
um, just because it's it's easier, right? It's nice to have some privacy when you have a, a young kid because you, you, with a hotel, you don't know who's going to be next to you and how late they're going to be up and how much noise they're going to be making, even if they're watching the TV, right? You can hear. It's nice to have the kitchen there to throw some cereal in a bowl for the kid, that sort of thing. And actually, we started using Airbnb years and years ago before before having kids. We have some close friends that I'm in Southern California now. We have some close friends that we met here. They actually ended up moving to the D.C. area. And within a year or so of them moving, we decided we would start planning a trip every year together. And we always travel around the July 4th weekend, the, the July 4th holiday. And we'd go for a week and we started doing international travel. We went to Peru. We went to Iceland. Um, and we, we've done a few other things too. And we always did Airbnb every single time. And it just, it's worked out, worked out incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think just to use, you know, my, my hometown and kind of the fool's hometown of DC as an example for why it's so compelling, um, as a customer, you know, you look at a map of DC and most of the stuff is downtown. You know, you have, uh, the museums, you have the archives, um, you kind of have access to the, the mall and, you know, obviously the white house and all these things. And that's where all the hotels are. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you have the restaurants that are down there, you have some bars down there, but it's not a very vibrant late night scene. Um, and, and I know personally, you know, when, when I travel, I like to be somewhere that feels a little bit more like where I'd live if I was in that city and just be able to kind of explore it in what feels like a little bit more of an organic way. Um, and so, you know, for, for DC, that tends to be Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights, um, and, and those types of neighborhoods where I live. And so there aren't really a lot of hotels around there. If that's the vibe you're going for, you know, you need an Airbnb. And I think that they manage to scratch that itch really well. I think what they also offer a lot of people is just flexibility on how they're traveling. Um, to your point about having a kid with you and just being able to easily throw meals together and have a full kitchen where you're staying. You know, I know people that do family uh, reunions and they, you know, get a big Airbnb. They do like a barbecue. They have a big yard, all this kind of stuff. I think it just gives you a little bit more wiggle room with a lot of the things that you might want with travel, but often have to sacrifice. And, and I mean, that's, that's really valuable to people. And, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, if you're, a property owner, or you have a lease that allows you to do it, you know, to be able to say, yeah, I'm not going to be here for two months. I'm traveling for work. You know, it's, it's nice for uh, people who have properties to be able to make some extra money. It's kind of a nice little win-win. It has created a little bit of a, a side market where people are intentionally buying places and then um, basically exclusively using them as uh, Airbnbs, which creates some housing supply issues and some regulatory issues that we might touch on later. But I think by and large, when this is used the right way, it's a really wonderful solution for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, and we'll touch on a little bit more, but I mean, it's it's created an entire cottage industry really of companies, businesses that exclusively buy properties in all kinds of different areas. And that's all they do is operate these Airbnbs. Yeah. And I think in a perfect world, you know, like I like to stay in someone's house, but at the same time, it's it's nice to stay at a location where, you know, if my friends are going to be nearby, we can easily be, you know, half a block away, not have to worry quite so much uh, about finding hotels and all of that stuff. Um, clearly, Jason, you and I are not alone in thinking that this is a good concept. Um, and, you know, you don't you don't get a starts with a B unicorn valuation without getting a couple fans along the way. Um, this company prior to early 2020 
was growing like crazy. Um, you know, you you look at their results for the full year for 2019. Um, some of the key metrics that they look at, their gross booking value, kind of similar to what we look at for a lot of these payments companies, you know, with what they process up 29% year over year to 38 billion. That is a very big number. Yeah, that's 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 enormous, right? And obviously what <laughs> they get is a smaller percentage of that, but that's the amount of, of money that people are willing to go to their platform and spend. And that's that's telling, right? Just I think for some context here, uh, Marriott International did uh, about $14 billion in revenue last year, right? So big, ho- again, revenue doesn't exactly translate to this, but Marriott is a big hotel operator. So they collect the vast majority of those revenues that come in as bookings. So context, this is a great big business. It is. And I think their their full year revenue for 2019 was about $4.8 billion, which actually puts them ahead of Hilton uh, in annual revenue, which is hard to believe because this is a company that um, is still pretty early on in, in its growth stage. Uh, but it has a concept that works. And I think it's created such a market around it that it's been able to enjoy a lot of growth along the way because the rest of that market is just trying to catch up. There are competitors. However, I think that they operate in kind of a slightly different space than the hotels. Um, they're catering to different customers. So really, a lot of their main competition is going to be people in this re- uh, rental market, um, this kind of more spe- uh, specified house rental market and vacation rental market like the VRBOs of the world. Right. Um, putting some more numbers to the business, uh, that, that $4.8 billion in revenue basically tracks year over year in terms of growth with that annual gross booking value. There are going to be some slight puts and takes there, but by and large, those numbers are going to trend together. So up 30% year over year, operating loss of about $500 million on that, total loss of $674 million. And we're focusing, Jason, on the 2019 full year numbers because I think uh, in some ways the company kind of gets a mulligan on 2020. You know, they, they were thrown such a <laughs> difficult and really business model bending uh, series of events, as, as a lot of companies were in 2020, that it's, it's kind of hard to get a really good sense of what's going on with this business if you're looking at anything from the past six months. Yeah, I, I agree. And in some ways, I think it's obviously it's still going to be worth taking a look at the numbers because I think in some ways Airbnb may have been more resilient than more traditional. Again, we're going to comp it to hotels in a lot of ways because that's kind of the obvious comp and it's clearly taking business from from that market. But I think in ways it's been more resilient than a lot of hotels. Yeah. So I know some listeners are going to be there being like, why are you talking 2019? We'll get to 2022. We'll talk about it. But right. I think just to kind of give you a it's sense- It's a better of- baseline. It is. It, it gives you a better sense of like when things are generally going okay. You know w- w- what are we seeing here? Um, and I mentioned that loss, just kind of a sense of where the money is going. The cost of revenue about 1.1 billion, which means if you put some quick math to it, the gross margins for this company are about 75 percent, which is darn high and can create a very compelling uh, investment opportunity very quickly. Um, however, those margins are getting eaten up because they are spending heavily in operations, uh, product development. General administrative, all of that together winds up being somewhere in like the two point something billion range. But really, Jason, the biggie here is sales and marketing. Uh, that's one point six billion on its own. I'm guessing that's not going anywhere anytime soon. I, I would expect not. Again, the keys, the, the the bottom line is with a business like this, you you want to see them spending on these sorts of things because they're establishing dominance. They're building a market presence so that the that the network effect of their scale is attractive to all the stakeholders. And at some point, what you just want to see is that the cash flows, the acceleration of cash flows, 
becomes bigger than the acceleration of spending on this. That's kind of the strategic thing that you want to be looking at. But no, it's this is it's going to get bigger. Yeah. And it's early innings in the space that they're in too. I think that this is very much a market that's in land grab mode. And so for them, you know, to be the first choice for customers who still haven't come online to doing vacation rentals and are maybe still hotel stayers, you know, to be able to say like, you know, we're, we're the one for you, uh, ignore VRBO, <laughs> you know, ignore some of those competitors out there. Um, because that's, that's valuable customer acquisition. And if you can become the definitive, the default for them, um, that's going to pay off long term. We should talk a little bit about what we've seen so far. And I said it before, but COVID-19 really threw the numbers for this business out of whack. We look at the first nine months ended September 30th, 2020, Jason. Revenue was $2.5 billion, down from $3.7 billion in the same period a year ago. Um, that is a pretty significant haircut. It is. And I mean, the bottom line is that that's, that's what happens when you know you lose basically two months Entirely. Just, you know, if you look, it's interesting, you start looking at some of the data in the S1 where they talk about their bookings and, and you see negative numbers, right? Because they had so many bookings that it was more, they had more cancellations than bookings they get than they got in that same period. Um, it, it just, I mean, it's they, the, the, the meter literally ran backwards for, for two and a half months. Yeah. And uh, it's it's nice to see that they were able to survive it. They did have to make some pretty dramatic changes, um, and they wound up having to trim costs pretty dramatically. So I think they laid off about 25% of the global workforce. Uh, they wound up reducing salaries that executives were receiving. Uh, the sales and marketing budget took a dip. I imagine as things return, that that's going to go right back up. Um, but they also issued uh, some debt financing to make sure that they were in a relatively good position from an operating standpoint, which thankfully they were in a position to do. Um, you see a much higher debt burden on the books for them now than you might have a little, you know, back in 2019. And I think that's because they wanted to make sure that they had access to cash. Yeah, that's because one of the reasons that they're really looking to try to do an IPO relatively soon is that they want to make sure that their balance sheet is as bolstered as possible because. Again, as much as the the spending on sales and marketing is happening, when you have to cut twenty five percent of your of your workforce and you're a tech company and you're building out an infrastructure, that makes it harder to grow, right? Now it's going to be even harder to replace that the the staff that that you lost, right? So it's it's really important that they make sure they have as much capital accessible as possible. Uh, and and my understanding is that the debt that they took on, I think all of it is convertible. So I think at some point. That that debt is most likely going to get turned into into shares down the road. So it's one of the things investors need to be aware of as we start getting more pricing and that sort of thing. As we as we get closer to an IPO, what is the impact of that debt on future? Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, Shareholders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I gonna, mean, really, like it's it's a dilution right. thing, right? Dilution. You, you that's the word. Yeah, exactly. So that's you know you have to be aware of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, if you look at the books and, and you can kind of look at this debt a little bit differently, um, depending on how you're playing out, you know, the first 12 months or so of them being a public trade company. Uh, but my, my, by my count in the, in the S1, 3 billion in cash and long-term debt of about 1.8 billion, um, a, a hefty amount of convertible notes in there, TBD on how that actually turns out. Um, but even at that point, Jason, that's a net cash position they're going to be in a spot where they can pretty comfortably weather some uncertainty for a while. And I think what, what's kind of interesting is to look at some of the commentary that we've seen from management about how COVID has affected 
usage on their platform, one of the things that really stuck out to me was um, they have seen bookings within 200 miles of users go from about a third to half of their overall bookings. And what they are seeing more and more of is people just getting out for short periods of time, you know, uh, and maybe not even going very far, but just kind of needing a change of scenery. Well, anecdotally, I can I can tell you, um, we've we've done that twice, and we'll do it one more time before the end of the year. We we have a couple of family groups that are kind of part of our cluster. I guess you could describe it. Our kids are in daycare together, so we really have exactly the same risk profiles already. And we rented a house, a gigantic, huge place um, that had a full playground and a big pool and all this stuff. And I think it cost each family. Uh, couple hundred bucks a night when we did it for a four day weekend back in like May. Um, and it was just a great way to get away and look at different walls, right? And let the kids get out and stretch and play. And then we did a little trip to the mountains a couple, um, maybe two months ago. Same, it was a smaller thing and it was just our family. Uh, but same thing, you know, these were all driving distance away and we plan to do something for, for New Year's as well. So um, just our family. So it's, yeah, I think... It's, it's like we've seen with a lot of other parts of the economy, right, where people that are still earning money and still working have a lot more disposable income right now that they're not using to go out to eat every Friday night with, with friends. They're not taking that big you know, family vacation to Hawaii or the Bahamas or whatever. So there's that extra disposable income. And right now, Airbnb is in a great position to be a beneficiary from that. Yeah. And, and that's kind of an interesting take on a trend that they were already benefiting from. Because you know you rewind the clock to you know February of 2020, um, and and the narrative for the most part when it came to consumer spending is people are spending more on experiences. We're moving a little bit away from spending on things, and I think Airbnb in particular because they offer remote locations, exotic locales, interesting spaces, also really benefits from kind of this like social mediaification of everything. And, you know, it's it's much more fun, I think, to be in a spot that is, uh, you know, kind of Instagrammable, whether that's your your MO or not, um, than to be in a hotel. And, you know, for them to be able to offer, you know, unique experiences that feel a little bit more um, curated, feel more local, you know, craft is such a big part of, of kind of what we're going for these days. They're already benefiting from that. And then you put people who are still making money in a position where, Frankly, a lot of those purchases, um, you know, otherwise, you know, won't, aren't really happening. You know, you're not really going out to eat nearly as much. Um, you're probably not buying as much because you're very keenly aware, if you're like me, of all the stuff you already have in your house, and you're trying to work through that rather than clutter things up. Exactly. So, so I think they're they're fairly well positioned given what a massive shock this was to their business. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, and again, I think it's one of those things where. You know, you think about like the Lowe's and Home Depots of the world that have gotten this big benefit of people doing home improvement projects and things that could have near-term implications for maybe their business won't be as great when we do go back to normal. I don't think that's the same for Airbnb. I think maybe to the context or to the contrary, it may be more like e-commerce where a lot of people have used e-commerce that weren't planning to ever use e-commerce and they're going to keep using e-commerce. I think maybe Airbnb might be the same thing. People that still, they were loyal to Hilton because they got their Hilton rewards, right? Maybe they decided, I don't feel comfortable in a hotel, but we need a weekend getaway. So we're going to go and we're going to rent a house somewhere. And they did it through Airbnb and they had a great experience, right? And so now they're, they're Airbnb customers, right? So 
I think that that's what we're going to see is that it's just, it's because again, this is such a young industry. It's not mature and there's, we're in that land grab phase. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting time right now. Yeah, I, I think that the timing of this is really interesting with where this industry is, Jason, because Airbnb in a lot of ways had a had a pretty big lead here. And there's there's VRBO and, and we can talk about them a little bit. Uh, but they're they're owned by HomeAway, which was then bought by Expedia. Um, so if you're interested, there's a, there's a publicly investable player uh, in the space already. Uh, but but you it's know, not a pure play, right? And nope. there's plenty of other problems <laughs> yeah. and warts we could talk about with the Expedia business. Um, I can say this just real quickly on it. Um, I was originally I was pretty loyal to VRBO back before Airbnb when Airbnb was really just kind of becoming getting a little bit of a, a critical mass, uh, just because VRBO was the one that was there, right? And they were started in Europe, a little bigger in Europe, and it, you know, it became a little more available in, in the States, mainly because there were a couple of areas that we were doing family gatherings and we needed a big space, and there were things on VRBO. But within a year, I just stopped even looking at VRBO and just shifted to Airbnb because of availability everywhere, and it was just, just became easier. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And they benefit a little bit from that Kleenex effect, you know, or the, the Google effect I've seen it called too, where it's like, when you think of this category, you don't think of VRBO. Um, you, you think of Airbnb, and they've really been able to cement themselves as the consumer brand in this space. What I'm curious about with, with the timing of this is, you know, they're, like I said before, still kind of in land grab mode. There are a lot of people that aren't using these, still using hotels, um, and our customers to be one, so to speak. You know, does this put them in a spot where they lose a little bit of that first mover edge because the industry had been halted and it gives some of the other players a little time to catch up? You know, I don't know if that's going to be the case just because the 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 playing field's pretty pretty level right now in that regard, right? Everybody's affected similarly. And I think simply the fact that they do have such a, not a first mover, but a most mover advantage, right? Because they're the pure play and this is where all the resources are focused right now. And if you think about other companies that are trying to get into it, a lot of them are doing it defensively, right? Because they're trying to protect their entrenched interests in, you know, the, the short-term stay, which that's, I mean, that's the big market, right? The long-term addressable market's pretty small. This is the short-term market's really where this is focused. I really think that they still come out of this as, if not the winner, I think they are probably going to be the winner. They're certainly a winner because they have the resources. They have that, that, that like I said, the Kleenex effect. It's the name that, it's not just the name that people looking for a place think of. It's the name that people that are thinking about it as a source of income and they own a property or thinking about investing a property. It's the name that comes to mind for them as well. Yeah. And, and I think that this is probably a uh, winner take a good chunk market. Um, but I think there are probably a couple winners here. Um, and one of the main reasons is, you know, this is definitely an industry that benefits from network effects, but there isn't any exclusivity to those network effects, which is which is kind of hard. And so, you know, for, for the likes of Airbnb, like you can list on there, but then you can also list on VRBO. And, and so, yes, those platforms benefit from there being more consumers and more property owners, um, but there's nothing to keep people from operating in both spaces. 
And in that sense, it does feel a little bit like Uber and Lyft and some of the rideshare market dynamics where, yes, you've built out this wonderful network, but now we're in a spot where other people can also benefit from this wonderful network that you've created. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe another another way to think about it is like Visa and MasterCard, right? You have Visa that is is much larger if you think about it in the consumer space for consumer uh, spending than MasterCard, but you have two companies that have done extremely well. And yeah, there's more friction, right? You have to go to the bank and get one or get the other. Actually, just go online. You actually have to go to the bank anymore. But at some point, you end up with a Visa and a MasterCard both in your wallet, right? And to a certain extent, the one that you use is just the one that you use, right? I mean, it, it, there may have been a reason that you started out that way, but at some point it just becomes, that's where the momentum is, right? So and I think that's most likely what we're going to see. And we could see like some incentive wars at some point. And that's what, like, I use my Costco visa a lot because I get a lot of rewards there, right? So, but then I, when I shop on Amazon, I use my Amazon visa because I get rewards there. So at some point, we could see something like that happen, right? Where there's loyalty programs and that sort of thing that kind of drive drive the market. But um, I think at this point, there's just such they have such a head start, and there's so much mindshare with the, with the brand um, that it's it's going to be tough for anybody to really meaningfully catch up because no, again, nobody else is really pure playing this in the same way that Airbnb is. One of the other kind of main topics that I think we need to hit as we're as we're kind of running through some of the existential questions facing this business is, you know, how how does the regulatory picture come together in this space? Um, you know, this this is a gig economy company in a lot of ways, but it faces a very different set of regulatory risks than the likes of Uber and Lyft. You know, it's it's not a labor-based thing that's going to dramatically affect their costs. It's like a local municipality thing, and it, it, it's much more regionalized. It's very, and it's, it's, it, and it costs the company more money to figure it out, right? There's, you go on Airbnb's website and you look in Ventura County, which is, which is where I live, just outside of LA. We actually border LA County. You won't find an Airbnb. They can't do them here, right? It's, it's the, our, our local regulations uh, don't allow for it. So that's, you know, that's a perfect example, right? And I mean, California alone has dozens of counties, right? And within those dozens of counties, you have, you know, a couple thousand municipalities that can individually have different laws. And I think one of the things that you've seen, and this is interesting, that I learned um, earlier this year when we booked a place, the place that we booked was in Fullerton, California, which is kind of down near, sort of close to Disneyland, kind of in that area. And when that that individual property owner, they... they, they they marketed that space as a great place for like a big family reunion that's also close to theme parks. Obviously, Disneyland uh, is not not getting a lot of traffic, so they kind of re- rebranded how they were doing it. But what I found was that the city of Fullerton actually had no way to regulate that industry. There was not a single written piece of city code um, for them to be able to use to regulate it. So they literally couldn't do anything about it. Their city council was going to be meeting like the week after our stay, and it was like the number one thing on their agenda to identify. So it's been that Wild West, right? Because a lot of places haven't regulated it because it's there was no reason to. But that's changing, right? So that is that is a big a big risk factor that's industry wide. Yeah, and and I think it winds up showing up in a bunch of different ways. I've seen some municipalities put rules on. Um, 
who can offer Airbnbs and they're only allowing it if it's owner occupied and it's part of the home or it's a unit within a home that's that's owner occupied. Um, and a really big part of that is the fact that we were talking about it before. There are these cottage industry businesses that have bought up a bunch of spaces or have entered long-term leases and operate them as Airbnbs. And while that's really great for travelers, if you live in that city, what it does is it artificially raises the price of property and puts people that may already be being price squeezed out of neighborhoods um, even more so in that position. And so I think it's a really challenging thing because we have all these local municipalities, all these jurisdictions that are handling it slightly differently. And the net effect is it might be that less properties are available on Airbnb. I may be one of the most hypocritical people on the planet when it comes to it. You know, I describe myself as an exclusive Airbnb user for leisure travel, yet I also recognize there is this enormous, you know, I think I think um, you know, I'm a little older than you, Dylan, but I think for people your age and a little bit younger that are really looking to try to get into houses, millennials, like this is this is the time that millennials are buying houses. And affordable housing is a generational problem, right? There is not enough affordable housing. And it's compounded, as these things tend to work out, in some of Airbnb's most interesting, compelling markets. Think about places like Austin. You think about the Bay Area. Housing's already incredibly expensive there. Those are also the places that you see this cottage industry having formed of these businesses that buy a bunch of condos in the nicest areas and in the most appealing areas. And they so they immediately soak up more of that residential supply that's already in high demand, and, it's, and they're exclusively for these short-term Airbnb rentals. So it's it's really interesting um, how this is going to play out, right? It's it's we'll we'll see what happens, but it's interesting. Yeah, and if you're thinking about the the risk that all of these individual markets pose to Airbnb as a business, um, it is work looking at their revenue diversification because they do say that you know they operate in like a hundred thousand cities. None of those cities are responsible for more than two and a half percent of their revenue. So they are spread out wide. Um, I think that the danger for them comes more in someone finding something that's very restrictive and seeing that it works exactly the way that they're planning on having it work. And then other cities just saying, well, that looks pretty good. I think we're going to use that same policy. My hunch is that that won't happen anytime soon because the lag on seeing the effects of, of policy alone um, will take a while. And really, you know, what we're seeing here with most of this stuff is we have an innovative idea. We see people use it in this really great way. We see a marketplace emerge that kind of changes the way that everyone thought the rules of engagement worked. And now we need to kind of step in and start putting some rules down. And there's always going to be a bit of a timeline there. There's always going to be um, some some time between the idea happening and us figuring out exactly what the best execution of this thing is for all parties. Yeah, that's the key. And it is good that they're so diversified, right? And to your point, I don't think it's likely that a lot of municipalities are going to go backwards, right? Where they've already become entrenched. It's really, really hard to go the other way once those things get established. Um, there is one other risk factor I wanted to I wanted to point out that I that I read that's it's just worth knowing about. Um, the company's calling out a tax liability risk that could cost the company more than a billion dollars in taxes going back to 2013. That could be it's still working through the details on that right now, um, but but it could it could have to cough up more than a billion dollars in its in its 
and its liquidity to cover past tax expenses. So that's that's substantial. So that's one of those things you got to kind of be thinking about. Yeah, particularly for a business of this size. I mean, I think even with an IPO, what we're talking about in terms of capital being raised here is in the low single-digit billions. So talked about the net, net cash position before. They're going to get some more, but that would be a significant hit to their net cash position. Um, and and they're not like a you know a Facebook or a Google that could take a fine and then cover it basically with a quarter's profits. You know, um, this is this would be a, a sizable thing for them to have to deal with. Yeah, it, it could it could be. And another thing that's worth understanding too is that a lot of their cash, because they're they've grown so much overseas, um, almost almost one and a half billion dollars of their cash is, is is overseas. So any domestic expenses that that their domestic capital doesn't cover, you know, they would have to repatriate that money. And there's more tax implications that come along with that. Um, so there's complexity kind of in their in their overall financial situation uh, and nuance uh, that's worth at least understanding. Jason, we obviously don't know valuation yet, and we won't until shares are available and we see something priced. But um, how do you look at this business? I mean, is this something that you're watching that is going on the watch list that you are eager to buy shares of, like totally ignoring? How are you feeling about it? You know, I am really, really interested. Again, I personally, I use the business and I love it. And if there's a business that I use and love and that is growing at a very high rate and has proven to be very disruptive, um, it's very interesting, right? It is very, very interesting. Um, the, the reality, though, is that, you know, um, even, even a great investment is a dumb investment at the, at the wrong price. So that's the thing that I'm watching most closely. I can tell you this. I can tell you somebody that is very interested in this, air, this uh, IPO that I've been hearing about from constantly for six months. That's our colleague, Nick Seipel. <laughs> like, I think he might go all in on Airbnb. You know, I love that because uh, for for folks that don't know Nick well, I think Nick defaults to skepticism. He does. And so when Nick gets excited about something, I immediately pay attention. Turns on the lights, really does. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, Jason, what's really appealing about this, right, is it's a marketplace. We saw that high gross margin figure. And so at scale and bringing some of those expenses down, this could be a very profitable business at some point. Um, there, there's a lot to like there. I think that the valuation exercise is going to be really interesting for them, given how totally out of whack their financials have been uh, in 2020. And you know, I mean, there, there's no certainty about when we'll get back to a period where they're more or less at cruising altitude and starting to get back into some serious growth. And and I think that that's a major question mark for the business. So, I mean, if you're if you're watching this company, you're interested in this company and you think that you might be wanting to scoop up some shares early. We say this a lot with IPOs, but I think it's particularly true here with all the uncertainty ahead of this business. Um, it's it's worth taking a very small position to start. I, I agree. And that's that's most likely what I'll do pretty close to the IPO is get some skin in the game. But if I could say this, there's the two metrics I'm going to be paying the, paying the most attention to, and it's to your point, are gross margins and revenue growth. Because if it can hold those kinds of gross margins and continue to deliver double-digit revenue growth, this is, it's more like a SaaS stock. It's more like a cloud stock because you see all of those spending into developing that infrastructure to get to critical mass. And then those big losses, it feels like overnight all of a sudden it starts pumping out these massive amounts of free cash flow. It's just incredible how these businesses, when they scale, how they do this. And I think that's what 
this could potentially be? Yeah, I think during some of its more recent private valuation rounds, uh, we've seen a valuation of somewhere in the mid 30s for this company. Um, you know, that would put them based on some of their recent sales figures at seven times sales. Um, we're obviously going to see them probably price well above that, but we're not getting into absurd land in valuation uh, as a multiple of sales, even if it winds up going at quite a premium based on that gross profit number. Just for some context, uh, Hilton Worldwide Holdings is worth about $29 billion, and Marriott International is worth about $39 billion. So that's kind of where it puts it. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily an extreme stretch considering how early it is in its business and, and how, how much it could continue to scale up. Yeah, I think the, the viability of that really hinges on, okay, what does growth return to? When we're back to normal, you know, it, is it in the the twenties? If so, like that, uh, it deserves a premium valuation. Um, if if they're struggling to bring people in and it winds up being in the teens or low single digits, then then I think that that valuation comes under a lot more pressure. Yeah, and that's something we won't know for two years. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's the ultimate waiting game debut, and I think some people are probably um, honestly kind of curious that they're even going public, and I wonder how much of that is cash needs, um, and how much of it, frankly, is just they were going to do it anyway, so they figured we're in a position where we can, we might as well. I don't think it's a bad time to do it. I think it's smart. I think, I mean, you think about the amount of cash that the Fed has pumped into the into the economy. You think about where interest rates are. There's a lot of interest in stocks, um, and this is going to fall right in the sweet spot of the like the the information economy. I think, I think it's smart to do it now. Well, Jason, hopefully we'll be able to come back together again and talk through some details once we have some firmer uh, details on this issuance and on this stock. But until then, great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. This was fun. Thanks, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at pool.com, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Oh,